digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My guests today on Digging in the Dirt are authors Troy Vitezzi and Drew Pendergrass, whose new book is Half-Earth Socialism, and that's what we'll be discussing today. Troy Vitezzi is an environmental historian who specializes in environmental economics, animal studies, and energy history. Troy writes on a wide array of environmental topics for a popular audience and has had essays published in The Guardian, The New Statesman, among others. Drew Pendergrass is a PhD student in environmental engineering at Harvard University. His current research uses satellite, aircraft, and surface observations of the environment to correct supercomputer models of the atmosphere. His environmental writing has been published in Harper's, The Guardian, and Current Affairs. Together, they have written a new book entitled Half-Earth Socialism, a plan to save the future from extinction, climate change, and pandemics. This interview is a precursor to a longer Zoom webinar coming up on April 19th at 7 p.m. at the Westport Libraries series, Dinner Disrupted. You can go to their website to see how to sign up to attend that event. And congratulations, gentlemen, on the publishing of your work. It's an impressive deep dive into the history of how we got to this moment and what possibly faces humanity. Why don't we get started by having one of you lay out the problem as you see it in the book, you know, and then we'll get to saving the future from extinction. <laughs> well, how, what is the book? So the book is, as you know, is a very uh, bit of a zany book. It defies genre. I mean, I'm a historian. Drew is a, a scientist, and we, we put this thing together. What we were trying to do is understand how we got into this mess, and what is the cause of the environmental crisis, and not just climate change, but also uh, the sixth extinction uh, that's going on and other problems, and then how to get out of it. So the, uh, the intellectual problem that we were facing is like, what would a society look like that had overcome the environmental crisis, and how would you do it? And, and in short, we, we argue that the crisis has to be understood as a capitalist crisis, and it's capitalist in that uh, we live in a society where investment decisions are taken uh, by private individuals without a sense to the whole of uh, humanity's interchange with nature, and therefore it leads to irrational outcomes. So as in we can be aware that we're destroying the earth, but because we don't direct investment, we and we direct investment towards just what's profitable, uh, we, we cause lots of problems, be it climate change or extinction and so forth. And therefore uh, socialism has to be a system that can regulate the economy and plan uh, what, what we should take from nature and how to give everyone a good life and to do so without markets, which you know sounds scary or sounds kind of uh, strange, but we think it's it's necessary. So, how did you arrive to this term "half Earth socialism"? Maybe we should touch on E.O. Wilson's half Earth concept as we do this. Yeah. So, um, the idea behind the half Earth, and we have a, a history of it uh, in the book, but um, is that uh, E.O. Wilson had uh, a while back uh, done some work on biogeography is what he called it with some collaborators. And the idea was that the biodiversity of a set of land originally in the original studies was islands is uh, related to the amount of land that is uh, in sort of a, a natural habitat. So um, if you have more land, you have more biodiversity basically. And uh, Wilson uh, eventually uh, 
kind of expanded this concept to the globe. And the idea is that if you have half the earth functioning in uh, according to sort of the, the logic of nature, according to sort of these natural habitats, then you have a way to avert the worst of the ongoing sixth mass extinction in Earth's history. So climate change is a big environmental crisis, but uh, uh, another environmental crisis is the, the ongoing mass extinction. So Wilson's idea here is to have a bunch of nature preserves, basically, 50% of the world in nature preserves. And this would preserve roughly maybe 85% of species. Um, so you'd still have a pretty big hit, but um, it would keep the biosphere running. We take this idea and try and modify it in a way that will fit better into other uh, environmental goals and also make sure that everyone on earth has a has a say in this and we don't reproduce some of the injustices of previous conservationism. Um, so we go through some of the uh, unfortunate consequences of previous conservation movements in the book a bit. Um, there's some pretty nasty examples of, of using conservation as a way to oppress indigenous people. Um, so we want to make sure that it's a democratic way of running things, you know, biodiversity is higher and indigenous lands anyway. So there's ways to do this sort of preservation that helps everyone. But it, it, we also wanted to keep in mind the idea of land use. So the idea that as we uh, transform the economy to a renewable system and we replace highly dense fossil fuels, right? Fossil fuels are concentrated solar power accumulated over millions of years, then uh, going to solar or wind or uh, biofuels as some plants have requires a lot more land than uh, existing fossil fuel infrastructure. So this idea of like focusing on the half or focusing on the land dimension uh, really um, kind of focuses our attention on um, sort of the reality of the environmental crisis and the magnitude of what needs to be done to change it. And also brings attention that we have to um, uh, a problem of uh, the food system, uh, which I know your audience is interested in, which is that um, a large amount of the human land use change has been due to uh, animal agriculture, livestock, especially. So um, focusing on this land illuminates certain problems and, um, and uh, allows us to you know, target uh, certain interventions to make sure that we, we protect the environment. Yeah, reading your book, I, I think I see, you know, you're approaching like a couple of different audiences. Do you think that you're trying to also influence the influencers and also influence the, the policymakers? And how much do you think that they're going to embrace something like this? Uh, there's a new report out by um, a couple of um, NGOs that uh, said that then this study titled Financing Our Survival, Building a Nature Positive Economy Through Subsidy Reform. They said that world governments spend at least 1.8 trillion annually to subsidize activities which worsen the climate crisis. So I guess my question is, you, you, we have, you're saying we should switch over from capitalism to socialism, but at the same time, there's all these you know, sovereign funds and governments that are doing an equal amount of damage, if not more. I mean, I think every author wants their book to be read and to influence the world, but uh, you also have to be modest about what you can achieve. I would say uh, we're also influenced by neoliberal history. I mean, that's what my day job is, is studying neoliberal environmental thought. Uh, this is just a side project. But what the neoliberals said is they want to influence the secondhand dealers of ideas. So you influence people who like, are journalists or um, you know, authors or you know, politicians as in people who uh, will get ideas out to other people, right? And they 
to do that, they have to build up a huge organizational system to get ideas out uh, from whatever evil meetings they have on top of uh, expensive Swiss uh, hotels into the broader uh, public sphere. So that, uh, that's hard to do, and why doesn't it do that with just one book? But it would be great if, if people read it. And But we wrote this for the, the lay reader. Like anyone can, can read this book, and you don't need a, a special background in science or history to understand it. Um, I think what we're also trying to do with the book is to say uh, there are a number of movements that are interested in overcoming various kinds of crises, whether it's inequality or the environmental crisis, but they don't agree on a lot of things. They don't see themselves as allies. I mean, many environmentalists are pretty hostile to socialism. Uh, a lot of socialists are hostile to, the, to environmentalism. Animal rights people are utilitarians. Um, you have a lot of misogyny in these movements and feminists feel left out and one can keep going on and on and what we're trying to do with this book is to say here's a way that all these different uh, you know, intellectual traditions and social movements can learn from each other and cohere into a broader coalition to achieve their goals. Because if you're uh, by yourself, you're not going to do very much, which again is one reason why we think the half-earth proposal is never going to happen under capitalism. Uh, this need, if you just have a conservation movement that's extremely small and, and racist and, and tied to rich people, it's not going to uh, change the world, right? You need a mass movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was curious about that because when you put socialism right on the cover, I mean, in a, in a country like the United States, that's almost a swear word, the way they it's handled in the media. And people get really like socialism. Um, isn't that where everybody doesn't do anything? You know, <laughs> and it's really an interesting thing to try to convince a population that has a sort of an antipathy towards socialism with the concept of a half earth socialism. Oh, we have to give up half the earth and we have to go to socialism to save the planet. Yeah, I think what we tried to do in the book is, is uh, the very first pages, if you read the book, are uh, dedicated to uh, sort of a status, an optimistic status quo, as in like we have some big environmental wins, like we have maybe 10% of car sales are EV and uh, electric vehicle in a very short order, we have, you know, lab grown meat kind of starts taking off and all, all these sorts of things start going, some real, real accomplishments. I mean, the energy system, the food systems are very big. So imagining real changes there, but we point out basically that overall demand for meat might outpace even like a lab grown meat sort of replacement or might, you know, our overall car use might increase even if you're increasing the proportion that are electric. So the idea is basically that if we go down the road we're on, even if we have lots of environmental wins, then the only thing that will be left to remedy the environmental crisis is, is geoengineering. So we bring up this idea of solar geoengineering, which is actively being researched at Harvard, among other places. There are many forms of geoengineering, but the one that's most plausible from a financial point of view uh, and from in terms of uh, research, um, a consensus is uh, solar geoengineering, where you fly some planes up in the stratosphere, you spray sulfur or some other compound uh, to block out some sunlight, and that cools the planet, uh, basically doing an artificial volcanic eruption. And this idea has all sorts of potential consequences. Um, it's very risky. We don't really know what the full impacts would be, but it could impact food security, climate patterns, all these things in uh, unpredictable and dangerous ways, and it could impact the ozone layer. So this, this proposal is basically a way of engineering nature to fit our social system. So rather than change our 
our social system, we're going to change, attempt to engineer nature and reform nature to make it safe for our current market-based system. And we think that's really terrifying. And we think that people should think of, I guess, the current track as, as that is what we're going to do. We're going to try and re-engineer the world. And we pose as an alternative this, what we call half-earth socialism, which is basically an ecologically minded uh, democratic control of the economy. So rather than allowing the economy to run unconstrained and re-engineer nature, we're going to try and engineer the economy, you know, apply democratic controls, take it under our conscious direction to restrain our economy from taking too damaging amount from nature. And that will allow us to avert this really reckless and dangerous effort to engineer nature. I think that um, although socialism may be scary uh, or these ideas may be scary to a general audience, our, our hope is that uh, in the book, we make, it, we make a case that there are no easy ways forward and that this way forward that we propose is, is a safer and uh, potentially offers many, many benefits, especially compared to the, the geoengineering future. Yeah, I got the sense that you guys are not big fans of geoengineering, you know, like the Bill Gates calcium carbonate cloud seeding project. You're just not a fan of that, I would imagine. Yeah, that's right. So you're pretty tough on environmentalists in this in this book. You know, I mean, you love them, but at the same time, you feel that the, the movement has let a lot of uh, opportunities slip away. And I think you wrote in there, you're pursuing win-wins for business and the planet, and you don't think that's really possible. No, no, we don't. And I think the environmental movement has been doing quite poorly and hasn't had very many victories for at least 30, 40 or longer, really since the 70s. Um, and it's ever since there was a shift towards a more business-friendly environmental movement that you had many compromises and you also just lack a, a framework to understand what capitalism is. Right, like, and why? Why do we live in a society with so many environmental problems compared to other societies? And also, you don't have any way to make coalitions with with other people. So, you know, we also say in the book that many uh, environmentalists are Malthusians, where they blame, uh, especially you know, poor brown people elsewhere for uh, for the problem that we're in, and that's just not convincing, and it leads to many bad outcomes. I mean, there's a, a large literature by environmentalists saying you know, that uh, we should actually stop food aid and let people starve to death and, and all that. And that really hasn't gone away. I think if, if you either you think the problem is going to be population or you think the problem is going to be capitalism. And, and because there isn't that capitalist analysis, it's going to be the former. And I'll say one thing that we're definitely hard on environmentalists, uh, but also hard on, on socialists as well. I mean, and we're, we're going to be attacked by uh, I think all, all quarters, unfortunately. Uh, but hopefully people will also see the limits to um, what their movements and ideologies uh, have been able to offer and, and try to re rethink these things. And this goes back to your question about, you know, why is, you know, socialism is a scary word. I think people are aware that capitalism is not doing very well, right? Capitalism has never offered so little to so many people and we need to think of an alternative and that takes intellectual work um, to really imagine that. 
you're up against forces that are profiting off the extraction of oil extraction of forest extraction of animals you know and destruction of uh, other species they're, they're like you said in your book you the left generally underestimates the fear and hatred of the right and the ease with which well-dressed men and women acquire a taste for blood one should not expect the neoliberals to meekly accept defeat you know that's where i get you know i focus when i ever saw that i go yeah that's absolutely right yeah, that line was in reference to um, that. It, it was uh, not us that said that. That was in reference to um, in the 1970s. There was a coup in Chile. The Chile had elected a um, democratic socialist government that was uh, aiming to chart a, a path away from Soviet-style communism, but that still uh, overcame capitalism and, and offered a democratic uh, control over the economy to its people. Um, this was a peaceful movement, uh, a movement that was elected. Um, but it was uh, quickly targeted by the U.S. Uh, as a risk. Um, it's a major copper exporter. It couldn't. Uh, they were worried about, um, you know, the foreign policy implications or, or all this, and then the fear of uh, the spread of communism. All these things, even though this movement was self-consciously its own thing. And uh, yeah, there was a, a U.S.-backed coup that um, executed the democratically elected president and and hundreds of of. Uh, members of the government were, were killed in this coup. Um, and our point is that even this democratically elected government that was really trying its best did come up with violent opposition. So it's, um, yeah, the, the opposition of entrenched interests to, to meaningful system change cannot be overstated. I mean, we're talking about transforming the base of the entire economy when we're talking so about getting rid of fossil fuels like, yeah if I can jump on that yeah i mean just to be clear like allende you know killed himself rather than be captured and then the um the forces around pinochet killed around i think five thousand people yeah, fairly mm-hmm. quickly so it was a very bloody repression that followed this this really nice moment in left-wing history. And it's important for the book because they also were experimenting like what would uh, what would a planned economy look like using ad- advances in cybernetics. It's almost got a, a mirror um, event happening in Peru right now. They just elected a, a, a populist young politician to run the country and they're rewriting the constitution and they're determining things like what is water for instance because some of the um, highly saline water down there is full of lithium and boy does people want lithium so we're, we're looking at a situation where again the capitalists want to exploit the lithium and exploit the country for it and then we have you know we don't know what's going to happen because they're still in the process just just to circle back a bit um I think it's important to remember that the right won't let the left win <laughs> without a fight, that's to be sure. And we'll see what's going to happen in, in South America. I think what uh, happened last year in Bolivia and the return of the, of the left-wing movement there was important and showed the, the necessity of having a mass movement and um, to ward off attacks by the right. But we are so far away from even that in most of the world. I mean, you know, we're writing this book and we're saying we have to think seriously about what socialism is, because I think for most Americans, uh, socialism is just like a, the welfare state in, in, in Western right. Europe, like in the 60s, right? And that's not socialism, right? That's, that's not enough. That's not going to get us out of this mess. And it didn't work before. So yeah. we have to think what's beyond that. And um, so we have to, I think, first figure out what we want and what what is socialism, what is an environmentally stable society, and then 
make a movement and then we'll see what happens and be ready. But we're, we're, we're so far from any of these things. Yeah, you said be ready. That's, that's curious because you, you, in the book, you emphasize that you've got to have a plan when the time arises that you need to be ready. Again, I study neoliberals for a living, and uh, they were very patient. I mean, what they had to do is they had to uh, revise laissez-faire liberalism because the Great Depression totally discredited it, and they rebuilt it from the ground up philosophically by meeting and discussing and, and being very self-critical, which the left hasn't done, which environmentalists have not done uh, for decades, despite defeat. Uh, and then once they figured out uh, how they understood the world, then they could make policies and then they could organize. And then when there was an opening in, in the public sphere, then they could fill the public sphere with their ideas. And because environmentalists and as well uh, animal rights people and, and socialists and so on haven't done that work, uh, whenever there is a moment uh, to, whenever there's a crisis, people uh, no longer understand the world or their assumptions no longer explain, explain the world, then and they're, they're open to new ideas because they haven't done the work that they let these opportunities go to waste. So we saw that in 2008. Uh, we're seeing it again with, with this uh, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic and, and the new liberals or whatever new liberalism has become, which is like a fascist mutant uh, variant of neoliberalism is, is still uh, doing well because they're still producing ideas. And we can't expect to just win automatically. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line, as you say in the book, the, the, there's so many forces that the free market, market is is basically destroying the planet. And to, how do we stop it? And, and, and how is it going to happen? Yes. I mean, and the, what we understand socialism to be is, uh, this is where we draw a lot on this obscure Austrian uh, philosopher, Otto Neurath, is we as a species have to decide collectively how we want to live, like who gets what, uh, what do we take from nature, and then we do that through making large you know, total plans at a global level down to the local, and then we, we agree on these things. And, um, but and, and Neurath was interesting because he uh, also was a museum curator where he developed this graphic design um, language to show what the economy looked like to a working class audience. And once the working class could see what uh, the economy was, then they could imagine changing it. And this is what we're trying to do. Uh, and this is why neoliberals really stress the in inability to see the market. Like, no one has knowledge. People are completely ignorant. This is why they're stressing this, because they're doing this in reaction to Neurath's definition of socialism. And we think Neurath is on the right track. And we are saying, okay, let's have a discussion. How much meat should people eat? How much land does that take? What kind of energy do we want? How much you know, land does it take? How much carbon does it emit? Uh, what's the extinction rate going to be? Let's talk about all that, lay it down. You know, what should, should there be people who have higher living standards than others you know, within societies and among societies? Let's, let's talk about that. And that's what socialism is. Right? How many? I know how much. How much warming do we want to have? That isn't part of the discussion within a market uh, society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the third chapter of the book, we um, we spend a lot of time basically outlining how we might make this happen in a way that is democratic, is fair, uh, is efficient, is and we're we're quite um, we kind of try and show our work. We want to make sure that people are 
people who are rightly skeptical of, of alternatives because they haven't been sketched out in sufficient detail to evaluate seriously, um, that there will be kind of grounds for discussion on what we're proposing. We, we, we lay out like how we think democracy will work, how we think, you know, local regions can uh, have their own autonomy while being uh, within a global vision of how, how we should work within nature. It's a, it's a plan. You know, in fact, on the back of your book, you have five points that maybe we should go over them as part of the plan and starting with rewild half the plant, the earth to absorb carbon emissions and restore biodiversity. But maybe if one of you could comment on those other four. It gives us a, a, a quick like uh, cliff notes to the book. Uh, rewild half the earth to absorb uh, carbon emissions and restore biodiversity. Pursue a rapid transition to renewable energy paired with drastic cuts in consumption by the world's wealthiest populations. Enact global veganism to cut down on energy and land use. Inaugurate worldwide socialist planning to efficiently and equitably manage production and welcome the participation of everyone, even you. Yeah. So I'll go through these real quick and Troy, feel free to jump in if I'm missing anything. But we talked a little bit about rewilding, but I didn't mention as much the, the absorbing carbon emissions. We talk a lot about in the book um, about how these healthy intact ecosystems work really beautifully to, to absorb um, carbon. Um, so an example I like to use is um, people often think of trees as absorbing carbon, but in fact, ecosystems store most of their carbons in the soil. So the prairies in the Midwest, right, with the bisons roaming around could have huge amounts of topsoil, the bison, you know, uh, interacting with the soil, um, grasses all could absorb massive amounts of carbon. And the oceans, you know, whales, when they die, take the carbon down to the bottom of the ocean with them and fish as well. And then you can have kelp forests and mangroves and all these ecosystems are all functioning in a way that can really take this carbon up and store it. And we've unfortunately, by disrupting these ecosystems, allowed that carbon to be emitted. So this is one way to have so-called negative carbon emissions is, um, is returning this land to its more functioning state. And then in terms of renewable energy, obviously, this is very important. It's talked about uh, a lot. What we point out, and this is something that's discussed pretty extensively in, in the literature, is just that the amount of energy consumed in the U.S. especially, but in a uh, uh, rich part of the world, is is an astronomical, and it's hard to imagine that with a renewable energy system, we could support the whole world on that level of consumption. It's just massive. The amount of uh, just resources you'd have to mine alone to build up the systems to produce that energy is, is we think, um, violates sort of this principle of of letting nature function properly. So we we propose basically this thing called the 2000 Watt Society, which comes out of Switzerland. The idea is that everyone on earth would have this amount of power. So most of the people in poorer regions of the world would have a much greater amount of energy that they can consume, uh, be the foundations of a, of a good life. But in the West, we would have, we would have reductions in, in our power consumption. And we think that's only fair. And we imagine a little bit what that might look like in the book. This is one of the principles that we have. And then the veganism point is very important to us, um, just because a huge amount of our land currently is in animal agriculture. It's something like 40%, right, Troy? The, um, it's massive. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and there, it's, it's only a few percentage points of GDP. It's not necessary for health. When we're pushing this point, we're not saying that, um, we, we say explicitly that um, things like indigenous people's hunting practices and you know you know we're not trying to take animals away from peasants or something like this but but this this system needs to needs to change like that's that's an absurdly irrational way to run an, a food system it's just makes no sense and so it just cuts down energy and land use for basically free and then in terms of 
managing all these proposals, it will require planning. And it's important for that planning to be democratic and representative of everyone. So we say in the book that we don't have all the answers. And it may be that you know, our imagined beautiful democratic world would disagree with us and might want higher energy use or may tolerate a higher level of extinctions, though we certainly would hope that they would agree with us. I mean, obviously, but we welcome that conversation and that debate, but we need to have it. And we need to have a coherent vision of how to manage the, the one planet we have. I agree with that. Do you think something like this plan needs some kind of catalyst, some kind of a you know, event. I mean, I don't know if you've read um, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry for the Future. He starts his book off with a, a massive death event in India that is a result of a wet bulb event where a lot of people die. And that is what the catalyst is for change on the planet. It, it seems people are not interested in change right now. It doesn't seem like there's a lot going on. Do you think some kind of catastrophic event weather-wise or like he proposes in his book that would be something that we would need or would happen to have um, something like this start getting enacted? We're already living through a really terrible global event that is based, I mean, that is caused by the environmental crisis. That's, that's the pandemic, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you cannot understand the pandemic without understanding how uh, the meat industry in China has pushed peasants into really dangerous forms of exotic animal farming and, and that has and that has been pushed by the government as a solution to you know, rural poverty because they can no longer compete with this industrial scale meat production. Um, and this was totally foreseeable. I mean, people, we had SARS in 2003. I mean, I was in Toronto at the time. Like it was, it was bad. And that was a much scarier virus. That had a mortality rate of nearly 20%. Uh, wow. So much higher. Yeah. And as in, like, we're getting off lucky with this current pandemic. This is not the big pandemic you know, epidemiologists have been predicting. It could be much, much higher. It could be you know, billions of dead, right? If we have a mortality rate of 50%, if people are really scared of avian flu. My point is, you know, we've had a huge shock and there's still no discussion about you know, what does it look, how do we prevent this from happening again? My point right? is zero, right? And that's where it's up to people to think about um, let's let's imagine a, a new society and debate these things and uh it's just kind of astonishing that it's taking so long for you know environmentalists and socialists to really come up with something uh on offer right it's uh it's a little it's discouraging enough. troy <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're telling me <laughs> yeah i mean this should have happened in the 90s right this or this happened like 20 years ago like why is it why are we still not having and that's the thing where no we're just really annoyed where i have read so many good good you know marxist books or you know environmentalist books and they really can diagnose certain problems in our society but they have no solutions or the solutions are just really vague or they're um are they really tiny? They're totally incommensurate with the scale that the task. You, oh yeah, just ride a bike or uh, change your light bulbs. I mean, that's not going to cut it. I mean, we were facing like this gigantic crisis, and we have only these tiny solutions. Like uh, we have to think bigger. Is it because the the wealthy of the Western world is like just they're just not interested you know they they're interested in accumulating more wealth and they don't seem to be interested in the problems even though it could affect their 
you know, coastal mansion or, you know, or, you know, all of a sudden society is totally disrupted. I, I, again, I go back to Robinson in his book. He said in the late 21st century, the, the rich pulled back and they, uh, they pulled away into their fortress mansions, bought the governments and disabled them from action against them, bolted their doors to wait until something um, poorly theorized better came along and, you know, and, and waited out it for the rest of their lives. So it's, it's kind of interesting that that seems to be coming what's happening. You know, they're getting their yachts and they're getting their, you know, their walled uh, estates and, and pulling back from the rest of us. If I could just yeah. answer that, Drew, real quick. I mean, uh, I would just say that capitalists, they are, you know, this is where we're very Marxist, where capitalists are agents of capital, right? Like capitalists have to, um, you know, produce and keep up with other capitalists. And if they don't, then they they lose their money and become, they're, they're no longer capitalists, right? So, and this is a point that we stress in the book made by Hegel and, and Marx that uh, capitalists are not the, the lords of our society. Instead, we have this inhuman figure of, of capital itself. And, uh, you know, maybe we have some nice capitalists that feel bad, but they, they're unable to, to change anything. And at some level, they're also imprisoned you know, by, by the system. Not to say that you should pity them, but you also shouldn't expect them to, to come up with solutions. We're speaking with Drew Pendergrass and Troy Batesi. They are going to be part of a Zoom webinar in April, April 19th at the Westport Library, a series called Dinner Disrupted. Dinner Disrupted is a series created in partnership with libraries in Fairfield and New Haven County, engaging patrons in collective discussions, actions focused on engaging residents to play a more active role in their food system. And it's a great series, and this is going to be one of the, the um, seminars that go down our webinars in this day and age um, that will be happening on April 19th at 7 p.m. So maybe I can get uh, something from both of you uh, as we wrap up here the, about the book and your hopes for you know the future. Half-Earth Socialism, a plan to save the future from extinction, climate change, and pandemics uh, by Drew Pendergrass and uh, Troy Vitesi. Any final comments about you know writing this book and your hopes? Well, I think before we wrote the book, we didn't know what uh, what a post-environmental crisis society would look like. And I think now we have a better idea, more or less, what that utopian society could be. And I think what's frustrating is that you have all these different social movements. You have, you know, we have the technology. We have, I think, people who are willing to, to change and think about change, but it's still so hard to actually achieve any of these things. But I think it's possible. So I think at one point we should be optimistic that we, we could overcome this and not be misanthropic and think humans are some kind of cancer or something like that. Um, we could have a, a good society and a good life for everyone and a stable environment. And it's just a matter of actually questioning ourselves and being self-critical uh, and thinking about our own uh, worldviews and then working together. Yeah, I also just wanted to say that what we're proposing in the book is more than just averting the worst of disasters. We want to we have a positive vision of a of a world where people participate and have meaningful says over their lives, over um and over what the world they live in is. I mean, currently the most important part of our lives are our jobs. We have no say over. 
And so we envision this expansion of democracy, this expansion of say, and then also by making the economy kind of subject to democratic control and discussion, we can see more clearly how we fit in into the world we're building. And I think that'll mean people have more meaningful work, more meaningful relationships with uh, others. And we think that it this vision offers many benefits, not just to nature, but to but to people. Well, the book is a really important addition to the debate and the discussion. Half-Earth Socialism, A Plan to Save the Future from Extinction, Climate Change, and Pandemics, uh, written by my guests today, Drew Pendergrass and Troy Vitesse. Thank you so much for joining me, guys. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. Yeah. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 